I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, we're live. There we go. Yeah. All right. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this well, is the live webcast Q&A Hangout with the MPNers and Jack Carroll. I am going to quickly introduce everyone, and then Raghu Marcus is going to take it away. So, Raghu Marcus. Hi. Jack Carroll. Hello. David Silver. Hello. And Rachel Fisher is in the back there monitoring Twitter and other social media things for this webcast. So if you have questions, she will be looking at them and can relay them to us. So without further ado, Raghu. Hi, everybody. So this is the second, yeah, the second in our live podcasts, meaning they're going out there right now and everybody who's listening, watching, 
send us some questions, right, now in the comments? Yeah. So there's two ways to do this. You can ask questions uh, directly on Twitter, or you can we sent out a link. Um, and also on Google Plus, there's an app that integrates in with this Hangout, so you can ask questions there, um, and then we'll answer them and feature them as they come in. Okay, great. Yes. So I, I had a thought because I had a couple of uh, articles sitting around. One of them was uh, something that David and I have looked at before regarding mind rolling and and talking about it. And, and it's around this guy, Sam Harris. Do you all know who Sam Harris yeah. is? You do, Jack? Yeah. So his his first book, uh, The End of Faith, that was published after 9-11, was a huge bestseller, New York Times bestseller. And, and as one reviewer put it, he was uh, he was speaking what a sizable number of us think, but few are willing to say in contemporary America. And that probably extends to the West, and I don't think America is particularly a more, um, it's more salient to America. I think it's salient to Britain and, and Western Europe as well. Um, his seething contempt for the world's faiths helped launch the new atheist movement and together with Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and Daniel Bennett, he became known as one of the four horsemen of the non-apocalypse. And uh, uh, just to give a little bit more background on Sam, in the next decade, he wrote four more books, adopting a popular philosophical tone in their examination of free will, lying, faith, and a morality informed by science. So that that's his big deal. This month, uh, so uh, some months ago, he came up with a new book called Waking Up. So he went uh, into uh, a sort of spiritual memoir, but apparently it's not much of a spiritual memoir because he doesn't talk about himself at all. And uh, but he encourages readers to seek transcendent experience through meditation and mindfulness. His goal is to pluck the diamond from the dunghill of esoteric religion. So he obviously he dismisses and is cynical about all of the world's religions. Uh, and whether or not he says it, he pretty much includes even the esoteric parts of those really the mystical parts um and uh his I, I just want to give you a little bit of an idea because this dave there's sort of a, a similar conundrum with him that there was with uh arthur brooks uh, david and i did this podcast uh, which i think is up there right now called abundance and abundance and attachment for mind rolling. And here was a person who, you know, left wing reviles him for what he stands for uh, regarding uh, capitalism and so, and so on. And uh, at the same time wrote this really perceptive and intuitive uh, article on, uh, on abundance and attachment. In this case, he, uh, Sam makes points that, you know, I would say that I'm 
you know, kind of in, in agreement with. And, and, and I've said these things to people uh, myself. So it's a, I'm slightly embarrassed on one hand because I, I really don't like his tone and I don't like his dis dismissiveness and his cynicism. But here's something. Uh, to walk the aisles of any spiritual bookstore is to confront the yearning and credulity of our species by the yard. I, and yet, he tells, there are people whose questions need and deserve attention. And it, it can seem that the only way to talk about them is in the context of one or another Iron Age religion or New Age philosophy. I can't say that I haven't myself espoused that very same thing about the self-help section yeah. uh, or, or just the new. In fact, I, David and I, uh, worked at a record company, which uh, we, I started with some other people, and it its initial uh, thrust was, let's make music that um, can give people an alternative to quote-unquote new age-ism stuff, uh, pablum, and I, I, and I very much have used that word, and so does Sam. <laughs> so he says, if... Um, I'm interested, interested in making a strong intellectual case to people skeptical of the whole enterprise. If it were in the self-help section, he's talking about his book appearing there, of the bookstore, that is a section of the store that most serious people don't uh, wander into because they expect to find Pablum there. So uh, this is, again... What do we do with something like this? What do we do with the fact that uh, there, there's a, um, a bottom line of uh, what he's talking about, which is, you know, he's, he got a neuroscience degree, by the way, uh, and he's talking about validating experiences or else there is no way that it works. And so that immediately uh, non-validates People's and, and I may be speaking a little. By the way, we know him and we knew him a long time ago. He actually went to the Himalayas, and this is going to be a segue to uh, with another uh, close uh, friend of ours who was with us in India when we were with Neem Karoli Baba, and they went and they did a, a pilgrimage to uh, Amarnath, uh, Badrinath, Kedarnath, the three holiest sites way up. I mean, talking 12,000 feet up in the Himalayas. And he actually got named Badrin, uh, Kedarnath, which is got named after one of those uh, mountain, um, holy places. So he was completely into at one point and did a pilgrimage regarding, you know, uh, entering into a mystic um, experience. And uh, so this is a whole other side of, of him. So again, Dave, it's another complex being uh, that we just cannot dismiss. And I know you have certain thoughts about him. Yeah. I, I don't want to make this about him, but. No, no, but, you know, that was a very good intro, Raghu, because I think that, um, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for atheists and agnostics. I come from an agnostic family, basically. Um, although my father became a Gurdjieff scholar in his later years, and Gurdjieff was one of the great mystics of the 
20th century. So that broke. And so I got both sides of it growing up, you know, um, in Lancashire in England, um, where my dad and my mum were uh, not interested in the slightest in organized religion, were hostile to it, in fact. Uh, so I grew up in that sort of uh, a sort of a socialist household where we believed that political um, progress was the most important thing because it would actually help people, whereas religion seemed to be the cause of divisiveness and war and so on. And Harris makes a point, as do others, like Bill Maher, uh, who I have some respect for, as a matter of fact, I, I don't at all condescend to him, uh, that, you know, organized religion is difficult to deal with anymore, uh, despite a, a rather intelligent pope and other members of organized religion who are not idiots. But it's, it's impossible for me to get involved with, for instance. So I have a kind of a dichotomy. My problem is not so much wondering whether things are true or not. It's just the fact that, um, like on American television all the time, they're saying religion is being rejected by the youth. Well, maybe organized religion is being rejected by the youth, but investigations involving meditation, mindfulness, mysticism, psychedelics are not being rejected by the youth in America or anywhere else. So that in itself is a, a false dichotomy that's being portrayed by uh, you know, the American media to sort of defend Christianity and Judaism and so forth. Mm. Uh, so that particular debate is a false one, because I know, I know many people who are not, you know, don't call themselves Hindus or Buddhists or anything, but who are deeply involved in self-inquiry, in awareness techniques, and in the exploration of consciousness. That is, in a sense, religion. And so I don't want to get, you know, I don't think we should get involved in that debate. I think we should get involved in discussing why some people are so hostile, uh, like Sam, not only to organized religion, but to those who are simply trying to help other people help themselves. I mean, self-help means helping yourself. And I know Raghu and I, have, uh, we've known each other forever, and we've been always very sort of cagey about that particular kind of, of book, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, was a famous one. You know? And I feel good about people who say, I'm not okay, and you're not okay. Hell to that. That's rubbish. That's mm -hmm. rubbish. I am totally not okay. So, <laughs> you know, so it is a very subtle thing, this. And, um, you know, to just get perspective from a, a younger generation, I want to throw this to Jack, actually, and ask you whether you, you know, from your perspective, first of all, um, how do you divide sort of organized religion you know, Church of England and Catholicism as yeah. it is in Britain, and pursuits involving yogic consciousness yeah. exploration. Well, um, I would, it's, that's a difficult one for me to answer because I think there's, I go through different stages really. There are times where I think that they're all, you know, paths to something that, we're, that, that is our goal when, when we're on the planet that we're trying to reach some other thing. And I go through the, those times and I agree with And then other times, I think there is a distinction between Eastern mysticism and, you know, the, uh, the three major religions of Judaism, Christianity and Islam, which is that it's an idea that I like, which is the Gnostic idea of the Demiurge, who is a slightly incompetent god that, and that is, it was tricked us all into believing, you know, that he's the main one. 
Um, okay. Yeah. So that that I, I I fluctuate really. It's a it's a difficult one to to sum up. I think that whether it is real or not, personal experience is still personal experience. So it's still as useful as it would have been whether it were real or whether it was not real. I like the use of the word fluctuate, though, Jack, mm. because I think we all fluctuate. I mean, yeah. particularly those of us that haven't had, you know, stunning mystical revelations, mm. which some of us have had, but even they don't last unless there's something mm. incredibly um, authentic. Uh, certainly Raghu and, and many of our friends spend time with a, an indisputable um, Siddha uh, mm. in India. Uh, and others that have just met those people and listened to Krishna Das and Ram Das and others get that get that transmission. Mm. But it still fluctuates. I think it does, uh, and I think you're being very honest about it. And I think it's helpful to hear you say that you can't concretely and discreetly answer that question because mm. it helps people. Because we're all, you know, we're all in in sort of new ground in some ways, you know. Mm because of our background hmm. yeah here's a little bit more uh, from him to even pique our contempt there are tarot cards next to legitimate manuals on how to practice meditation next to theosophy it's not snobbery to make those distinctions. There's a huge percentage of Americans who have no interest in science. The fact is that New Age literature is bursting with pseudoscience and wishful thinking and sheer fantasy and intellectual frauds. It's intellectual poison, much of it. When you have somebody writing about quantum mechanics and healing your body, you know you've opened the wrong door into the mansion of understanding. <laughs> uh, well, he's so. completely up a creek on that because there are so many very, very reputable neurologists and scientists and all kinds of people, ethnologists and anthropology people who do feel that there's an absolute connection between obscure scientific inquiry and modern, modern inquiry, empir empirical inquiry, and those, um, you know, sort of uh, realizations that people get from mystical practice. So I think he's just plain being a shithead about that. Well, he's stoking yeah. the fire intentionally, right? I mean, the language he's using, you can you can ascertain the intention behind it. And, you know, I think what we've, I think, you know, based on the backgrounds that we come from with a, a lot of these teachers that are on MPN and everything else, you know, we're, we, we, it's easy to get caught up in like his divisiveness and the us versus them science versus you know ethereal things but you know it sounds like a guy who's you know either confused or staunchly trying to hang on to something that you know maybe is a, is not as solid as he thought it was so you know i i look at it from that perspective i mean you know i know a long time ago not a long time ago but like 10 years ago i think the things he was saying a lot more people believe like firmly and solidly nowadays you know whether it's because of the internet or consciousness or whatever it is it seems to be that there's a much more accepting uh group of people 
uh, or, or minds, you know, to, to be willing to say that, okay, well, maybe science is valid, but maybe there's other stuff that are valid too that aren't as, mm. uh, you know, material and tangible. Definitely. Um, and I've got a big pack of tarot cards on my <laughs> altar up there, so I feel a bit stupid now, so thank you. For that, <laughs> uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's because it, it's sort of like, yeah, rational inquiry is good up until a point, and it depends because it seems that there, in the same way that, you know, I, I think all our goal in, in some ways is to find something other. Their, their goal is to sort of, is to see science as the, as the main, the, the pinnacle of their existence, which um, it's, it's helpful up until a point, but I, I think the, there are too many, there are too, there are too many difficult questions which on science alone, you know, cannot be answered. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What and what's really missing, really? Uh, I mean, because I, I do again, it's a complex thing. I mean, I you know, I've said and thought bad thoughts about Sam Harris, mm. uh, but in reality, some of what he's saying is is true uh, in in relation to uh, most especially for me around. Uh, there are self-help books out there, uh, and there are self-help teachers out there that it's it's really mostly about being able to have a better life, more money, nice house, abundance is just fine, and we shouldn't neglect, negate it, and so on. So there's a lot of people out there, or it may not be as gross as that. It can be just... Um, positive thinking kind of stuff and 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 he you know you take the shot there of not addressing some of the deep stuff that we all are uh, living with and mm -hmm. and really attempting to transform so there's a way in which some of what he's saying is very true and can be not that helpful it'd be the opposite of self-help mm -hmm. and uh on the other hand, in terms, uh, it's funny because one point last year, uh, I think Ramdas and I were talking about the institutional idea of organized anything can be just, and he was talking to me about the institutional nature that he did not want to get into of the Love Serve Remember Foundation, which is the overall blanket for us disseminating uh, what we've been given in India from Ram Dasan, from Maharaji. And, and so we were, he was really decrying getting into that kind of a place uh, institutionally, which is very much what Sam Harris is decrying. And so we talked about it, and interestingly enough, the next, that evening, I got an email from a friend and he said, uh, you just have to see, it was around Christmas time, you just have to uh, take a look at this video. It's from a priest, a Catholic priest, giving a sermon at a church. It was videotaped. And, and I did. This guy, every word was full of love and compassion. It could have been His Holiness the Dalai Lama speaking. It was extraordinary. 
and 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 it really relates to the one thing that he's it does not matter what religion you happen to be part of or you adopt or anything like that it just matters what that internal experience is that you have and how you express that to everybody around you and this guy was doing that and that's really to me what it's what it's all about there are a lot of conventional religious preachers who are extremely tolerant not only tolerant but really fascinated and interested in the other disciplines you know increasingly i i noticed this uh like you say christian uh preachers catholic preachers muslim uh mullahs and 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 jewish rabbis who spend a lot of time in you know inter ecumenical stuff so you know you can hardly you know put them down they're really trying my problem comes when you see uh strains of this is the one that works and the rest of you are for shit and that's what we're seeing in extremism all over the world yeah and, it's been around for almost forever right i mean yeah i mean history. Yeah, sorry, no, please. No, no, I'm just reinforcing that. I mean, it seems like that type of mindset has always been around. I think it's, again, a reflection of kind of an egoic way of thinking, right? That this is the only way. We know it, you don't. An us-first-them paradigm, that, that's possible not only in religion, but everything. So, um, yeah, and that's that type of thinking. I mean, I think that's kind of what we're trying to get to the core of here is how to get beyond that to, because we know the world isn't a perfect place and we know that religion has been around for a really long time. So just by virtue of itself, it's not a panacea for the world's troubles. But um, I think there's, we obviously all know there's there's lots of value in many different paths. Um, so yeah, not to cut you off, sorry. <laughs> no, but I mean, exactly. And but the, to me, the optimistic thing about this uh, which maybe Sam Harris knows but doesn't particularly want to focus on, is the fact that many current, uh, you know, leaders or at least preachers in those disciplines are very open to the common factors, just like Roger just said, of love and compassion and, and savor and, 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 you know, helping people and being kind and fundamentally being kind in front of everything else. So you can talk about Abraham, you can talk about Muhammad, and you can talk about Buddha, but if you're if you're just a mean, nasty, divisive person, then those things are just empty. And I, I think we're actually in an era when that is, when those divisions are beginning to erode, and that organized religion is less dogmatic than it used yeah. to be, you know? Well, I think the, the, the reason sort of why the the three big religions are uh, easier to interpret in the way of, you know, the us versus them. It's because the, if you look at the time where they were sort of the, the main texts of those religions were written, people did need to be, need, people did need a sort of, they weren't as educated, so they did need, they did need some, you know, rules. They did need a lot of, you know, a very sort of hardcore God that is going to, you know, lay the law down. And, but now we, <laughs> We've sort of we've sort of evolved, I think, a little bit from yeah. that. Um, huh. and, yeah, I think that I think that sort of explains it in a, in more material terms than you know the demiurge has, has come to uh, take over our our. I think it's it, and that's what I like about Buddhism that it, it, nothing nothing is sacred. It's always evolving. Hmm. Yeah. 
Right. That's like the Dalai Lama when he says that if science proves some aspect of Buddhism wrong, then we'll get rid of it. I mean, that comes from a deeper place of knowing where I think, you know, the wink and nod is that you guys probably aren't going to find anything that's wrong here. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's it's an open contemplative mind state. Right. Those are that's when you can actually come up with good stuff. Uh, like like Jack just said, you know, Akhenaten was the first pharaoh to say there is only one deity. Whether he was referring to an inner god or to an outer god, uh, before him, there it was multiplicity within Egyptian lore at any rate. And when he did that, uh, that was the precursor. As as Jack just said, when he said that, he was actually a guy that went into the desert. He was a pharaoh just like Buddha who left the palace. He left it. He went into the desert, contemplated and meditated for years, came back and said, there aren't a million gods, and Horus isn't the beginning and end of everything. Uh, there's, there's one, he was the first monotheistic leader. And yeah. I think Jack's point is extremely, you know, true. The, uh, the, you know, the, the, they needed that one god at that time. Before, and, and then later, you know, here we are in the 21st century, and we're saying things like, it's all an inner urge it's all the inner it's us it's within us it's not out there somewhere it's certainly not a very venerable old christian gentleman that looks a bit like santa claus who makes everything happen for us and punishes us when we do something wrong mm. it has evolved to that and you know that in itself is a very beautiful beautiful thought isn't it that yeah. we've gone through the centuries and come to this well there's a, there's a great Alan Moore quote, I don't know if you know it, but the, the quote is, um, the one place where gods inarguably exist is in the human mind. And um, I think that, you know, that, 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 that there, are, there are archetypes that we can, can tap into through, and that's happened forever, that whether it's personality archetypes or whether, like, I, I think I be, I don't know because as I said I'm always fluctuating. I believe that that there is something there there is something else. I don't know what that something is, but perhaps that that's sort of been around and it's just as natural as the meteors and the, and the and and the stars and everything else sort of in, insane thing in the universe. That that's just a natural thing. Hmm. I'm going to jump this to another level, <laughs> okay? Uh, because uh, when we talk about it's absolutely, you guys just talked about it being completely inside oneself and having that experience is undeniable. And uh, so I want to, we're uh, working on a book uh, with the Love Server Member Foundation which is many of our experiences after meeting Ramdas and uh, we ourselves going to India because we wanted to experience what he experienced with this realized being, Maharaji, we called him. And uh, so I just happened upon um, this particular story from one individual that I thought I would read to you. Uh, and I'll give you a little background. First of all, his name is uh, Dr. Larry Brilliant. He's, uh, he's fairly well known uh, because of his work with uh, pandemics over the years, starting with smallpox in India, where Maharaji got him eventually involved in that, uh, uh, working with WHO and eradicating smallpox at that time. 
and he's been just now, of course, working on Ebola. We just had a chat, actually. And a very, very accomplished doctor and uh, scientist. And he always had that head, uh, scientist uh, mindset, shall we say. So his wife, a little background, his wife was in India with us, with Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, after we went back when Ramdas informed some of us where he was. She fell completely in love with him and was just not going anywhere. And she begged him to come be with her to share this experience. They were married. And he was cynical. He was pragmatic. He was not interested one bit, but he didn't want to lose his wife. So he came to India. And he came up there and felt absolutely nothing. And Maharaji ignored him, basically. <laughs> nothing was going on. And people are touching this being's feet, all of, all of these kinds of things that made him, he was just reviled inside. So at one point he says, I'm leaving. And his wife says, okay, well, at least you tried. And here's what happened. I told Girija that I was going to leave, which meant ending our relationship. Because if that was her place and it wasn't mine, then what to do? I cried and I was really sad. I told her that I wasn't going down to see Maharaji that day. She went to Kenshi and I went out in Nainital and walked around the lake. I got a boat and went out on the lake and found myself doing something I had never done as an adult, which was praying, asking for a sign, trying to figure out who this fat man in the blanket was and if I belonged there, and no sign. I was begging God for a tiny little insignificant sign that only I knew. I told Gita I was going to leave, pack my bags, and she said, well, are you at least going to say goodbye to him? Of course. Look, this might not be the right place for me, but I was polite. We went in an early taxi out of Nainital and were the first ones there. We told the taxi to wait with all of our luggage in it and went out into the ashram. Girija and I sat before Maharaji's tucket bench that he used to sit on, waiting for him to come up. On that tuck it on that bench, folks had built a mandala made of apples and flowers that spelled out Ram in Hindi Sanskrit, the mantra. While we were waiting, one of the apples fell off and rolled onto the straw mat on the floor. In my mind at that moment, it seemed that God's name was incomplete. So I reached down to pick up that apple and complete the mandala. The moment I had my hand down to pick up the apple, Maharaji pushed out of the doors and stepped on my hand. Now I was doing exactly what I never wanted to do, which was touch his feet, but <laughs> he had me pinned down. I was incredulously wondering how such a small person could apply the force of hundreds of pounds. I couldn't get my hand out. And he started laughing. Maharaji said, you weren't here yesterday. I was kind of pleased he at least noticed because he'd never noticed before. He said, where were you? I didn't answer. 
he said a couple of things that were joking around. Were you horseback riding? He was laughing. Then he got serious for a second and he looked at me and he said, were you at the lake? I recoiled. Then he diffused it the way that he did when he said something that made you realize he was better than the NSA at tapping your internal phone system. <laughs> were you swimming? That lake was so polluted, no way. There hasn't been any swimming in that lake since the British left. I didn't answer, and he said, Oh, yes, you were talking to God. Did you ask for something? Did you ask for a boon? Did you ask for a sign? That's when I started to cry. He had sat down, but his foot was still on top of my hand. That's when he started slapping me and hugging me and pulling my beard. Kept saying, did you ask for a sign? Did you ask God for a sign? And then all the others, Tukaram Sita, Krishnadas, Ravidas, had all showed up. Girija grabbed me and hugged me, and they all just kind of came around me. None of us have really talked about it, but we all had an experience like that, which was the real initiation. You read in all these Sri Krishna Prem books and the yoga of the Bhagavad Gita, and all these guys who used to live up in Almora about what's supposed to be the initiation of the guru to the chela. They've always got some Sanskrit mantra that gets exchanged, maybe some butter burned and some incense. But that was my initiation. More important than opening my heart, it is what broke my head. Because it was only my head that was keeping my heart from being open broke my head and that's what happens to all of us eventually this is an extreme case obviously of Larry having the karma to be in front of, of a being like this in, in my case all of us it's an extreme case and uh, but this happens to everybody on one level of another either through a direct connection with a teacher or a guru or a finished being like this uh, or uh, any in any means whatsoever your head has to break that's really and to do that is to engender you know all sorts of different practices and so on and so forth but that to me is the real rebuttal to good old Sam, who went to that place where Maharaji was and, and certainly had darshan, they say, with uh, the resident saint, Siddhima, who was there at the time. But I guess he did not have the karma to have his head broke. It, that, there's something terrifying, though, about the idea of having your head broke. <laughs> there's, so, there's something legitimate about not being able to, because I like some of my rational faculties, um, and I, I, of course, I would like to experience a, a fully transcendent experience in this lifetime, but I would also like to know when somebody's, you know, lying to me or that, or that. I don't want to believe everything, but I think I, there is something that's scary about that you know having having that happen to you that you you won't be the same as you were before you won't be the same as you were before but it's not it's not you're not getting a lobotomy or anything like that it's not like yeah. it goes away it's just that your vantage points changes 
and mm -hmm. when the vantage point changes, you know, the mind is a better, uh, it's a better servant than a master, that's for sure. So that's really what that turnaround is. Yeah. And, and yeah, in, the, in, this, in this man's case, Larry's case, he really came from a, a total scientific background and he's been able to use that his whole life, but he's just coming at it from a, a different perspective. And that's, you know, that's really what uh, is the uh, incisive part of, of integrating a whole being. And it's just changing perspective. And that's uh, what, you know, we've all spent a lifetime working on. Um, hey, Noah, what about questions or something? Questions. Let's see. <laughs> Let me check. Uh, what about the question that people might ask about? Well, I've never had an experience like that, and I haven't even been to India, and I haven't, you know, and I'm just taking this on faith that you guys aren't all insane drug addicts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, that question comes up all the time. Right. Uh, and and how are you supposed to answer that? Because, you, you know, you, you can say, well, it is a matter of faith, and I did experience it, and do you trust my judgment? And the person will say, well, I don't really know you, so I will get to know me, and if you get to know me, you'll know that I'm not... Uh, pushover, because like Jack was saying, he wanted to retain certain aspects of rationality in order to be able to analyze the reality around him in that way. And then you said, I'm being a bit of a a, a leech here, but I'm saying, you said Raghu, well, it's better. The the mind is a better servant than a master, which is great. So it's sort of like you you're maturing the mind. You're you're building it. Oh, you're back. Yeah, you're back. yeah. I'm back. Would you, say, oh. would you say it's sort of like um, going, oh, there's, there's two levels of the mind. One way you can, where you sort of, like a mindfulness practice, you stop yourself and you go, oh, this is what's happening. You know, this is the this is the thing that's um, that's happening here is that I now I now sort of under I I understand what's going on here, but I'm seeing it from a different viewpoint um, because of an experience that I've had. So I understand I, I understand that what the dynamics of this situation, but with with this knowledge that I've that I've got, I can then bring this to it and understand that it's you know it's it's temporary. Mm. Actually. What what I'm thinking of, um, which I forgot to mention, Jack, because it's a very valid point, and David mentioned it again, of course, is how do we, I mean, you can't just trust every teacher that you meet necessarily or or your friend's experience or, or whatever. And I think part of the maturation uh, process is gaining um spiritual discrimination it's called vivek in sanskrit i believe uh and that discrimination it has a lot to do with where you're able to hear this stuff again if it's uh, you're hearing stuff and your mind is accepting it or you're agreeing with it or you're not sure about it so you may study it and so on and so forth but it doesn't necessarily become experiential for some time I think that the 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 idea going back to the idea of of changing our vantage point so that 
because it's very easy to fool ourselves when we're completely in the mind. You need to be able to, uh, and I think that's where in mindfulness meditation uh, practice comes in big time, so that you're identifying yourself with a place which you can do through breath, uh, the spiritual heart, the soul, whatever, clear mind, whatever you know you want to call it. It's all it's all the same place. And once you can identify more there, I think that you have a better chance of not fooling yourself and not being fooled by other people. Yeah. Yeah. Enough of that sermon. Here, Rachel has a oh, question. Well, I just wanted well, to say... Very well put, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this kind of relates to that whole issue. Um, so when I went to India in August with Raghu and his wife, um, I actually stayed at the ashram Kenshi, where Maharaji... Uh, the, the ashram that Maharaji created um, for a week, and I got back, and it was my first trip to any place like that. Um, and when I got back, the main question people asked me, you know, what's the main, what was the main difference between India and the United States? And the first thing that came into my mind, it wasn't the, you know, the socioeconomic differences, you know, the levels of poverty and the people living on, you know, piles of trash. <laughs> um, you know, it was, um, it was where they, where people come from. So here, I think in the United States, people live more from a logical perspective. They use their brains more. And in India, I think they're led more from their hearts. And I think that's just a natural, it's just how, maybe how they're raised, a cultural difference. So I, I think that's interesting to think mm -hmm. about because we're thinking, you know, how do we get out of our minds? But I don't think that's as much of an issue for people in India. Um, I could be totally wrong about that, but that just... No, and I think that makes perfect sense because Carl Jung is the first person I ever read anyone's thoughts about potentially bridging the East and the West. And he went to a lot of different places, you know, as a European, and was like, you have to understand that they're, where they're coming from culturally is completely different. So just by virtue of where they're coming from and their consciousness around them, um, and of course, Carl Jung believed in the collective unconscious and a lot of other things, but he was like, we don't approach these same things in the same way. There's a different relationship. And it's not to say we can't, but you just have to be aware that the perspective that you're coming from may be a little bit different from where these things are actually originating from. Um, and I think that's totally valid. He said very similar things about India in particular, that uh, they live from a different space and that that was one of the biggest takeaways that he had. And he was, he was obviously brilliant. So. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of this is, you know, from the perspective of a Westerner, obviously, because we all are Westerners, we don't know the perspective. Well, I guess here you go, KK. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah. I think it's all about, and Rachel's absolutely true, and it, it revolves around the family. I mean, they just, in India, have such a strong family orientation, and the amount of, uh, they do not have the kind of fear that I've known people to experience in their families, uh, either from siblings or parents or doing good and following not being able to express yourself because you're afraid love will be taken away that is not the case i mean you cannot say anything completely universal i mean there's lots of shitty families in india but the ones that we were know 
and have known for all these years who have taken us in are uh, very much what Rachel's talking about. And that uh, that's what she was introduced to because that's who we hang out with when we go to India. In fact, one member of that family who is uh, very close around us is, is uh, visiting with us right now, K.K. Shah, who is at the retreat. So uh, that helps a hell of a lot. But not to say, Jack, I, I mean, talk about your family a little bit because it's something yeah. I, we haven't talked about before. Yeah, well, my, my family are uh, just they're, they're incredible, really. I mean, like, um, I, I've not had, luckily, um, thank God, I've not had any, you know, real bad, real bad experiences at all with, with my family. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think that is that I think maybe, maybe that the, the, um, the, the, the nature of the importance of family in India, and I was speaking to my uncle about this the other week because he, he's just got back from India actually, um, uh, the, the, the reason why it's so important is because I don't know because obviously I've never been but that th things are, tr are transient there so there's got to be you know some sort of um, some sort of stronghold where you can you can really you know identify with and I think that's important any you know from Family in life is important, and you guys have shown that with your, you know, your spiritual family. Mm. Actually, uh, I think it's really, uh, I don't know about the transient part. Uh, mm. I mean, it's more about, I think, that the, the traditions that have been kept up, again, it's dissipating in the cities and so on in India. But where we, when you go out of the cities and in our case into the Himalayan foothills in this particular region, then you do notice that people have really kept up tradition, and uh, and that that is such a strong part of the family and how and what they experience and how they act with each other and so on. But you know this is being dissipated and uh, it's I think one of the main issues that we have in our society uh, and here in the West where the family is so fragmented and uh, there is uh, so little support for so many people I think that mm. that's a, a major tragedy and uh, in terms of social action I feel like that is a a place where we could all lend our hand a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it may be an obvious statement to make, but just to try and get a correlation between the first thing that we talked about, of, um, you know, of, of cynicism and the idea of the the religious institution not necessarily being a good thing all of the time, and this subject of family is that it's an obvious point to make, but that people always have a capacity to do to do bad. So it's not that it, the the things are there to serve us. The the, the ideas, you know, or every idea is there to serve us. It's just about how we approach that. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I think that I think that's it. And I think people are the problem. Bad people. <laughs> People are the problem, is right. Yeah.
Um, and this stuff has been going uh, on, uh, as Noah said before, for thousands of years, the polarity of religion. And you're right that at one time, uh, given what the period of time was like, there was a necessity, probably, for people to be able to uh, have a, a structure and rules that uh, allow society to function in, in a more better way. Uh, the, uh, the Hindu uh, philosophy uh, from the Vedas is, uh, separates uh, thousands of years into separate uh, kalpas, they're called, uh, yugas rather, uh, the kalpas are the amount of years in each yuga, which is dec uh, 20, 000, 30, 40, 50, who knows. Um, and they gradually go from, from the age, the pure age, which was called the Satyuga, all the way to what we now know as the Kali Yuga, age of destruction. And Satyuga, and KK, our friend, was explaining this. We should have had him, him here <laughs> explaining yeah. it. I'm doing it. But, um, the Satyuga is the age where everybody is interconnected and knows that interconnection with each other. So there is constant love. I mean, there's uh, everyone has work, everyone has respect for elders, on and on and on. The, you know, it's just uh, talk about a perfect world, all the way to where we are here now. But the one thing and this is something KK uh, talked to us about the other day, there is a big advantage to the Kali Yuga. And what is that? This goes, this will really tickle you, Jack, because it goes back to the Hare Krishnas. We're yeah. going to get into that again. <laughs> and that is that they say, the in the Kali Yuga, that's the only time that you do not need to be a big meditator. You do not need to be a big yogi. You do not need to be a big intellect, spiritually intellectual using Gyan Yoga. You do not, none of those things are going to have you cross the ocean of illusion. What will is only one simple thing, repeating the name, right? Which is what the Krishna's say. And of course they say there's no other way which is an unfortunate part. We've discussed that before. But uh, so there, that's the one gigantic uh, advantage that we have in this age is uh, the simplicity of repeating the name. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I haven't practiced for a good while now, uh, a few weeks, and... I can see a difference. I mean, like, I'm st a lot of I've been doing a lot of creative things lately, so I think that that's just part part of the practice. But it's not necessarily that I've become a worse, you know, person to be around. It's just that I, I'm not I'm I'm not in the same groove. I'm in a different I'm in a different space. Um, yeah. So yeah, it does work, and that's you know that's scientific evidence, Sam Harris. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry for all the names I've called you. Um, yeah. <laughs> Jack. Yeah. Why not? Because we're kind of no. We're, it seems to me we're at the close of our uh, show today. Yep. 
but I'd love to hear, Jack, what are you up to? Because you just talked about it the last few weeks. Seems like you've been busy. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I've got, um, I'm writing a radio for um, Sitcom Pilot, which is a, a radio station in, in this country um, that uh, produce comedy, radio comedy and that sort of thing. So I'm just, I'm writing that at the minute. And um, and then it's, it's sort of, I'm, I'm doing that and uh, I'm just focusing on, on you know, uh, making my, my um, stand-up comedy better. And that's that's a constant evolution. Um, but I think, I think um, after Christmas as well, I will, you know, I'm focus on uh, be- becoming, um, becoming um, enlightened. So that, that, <laughs> that, 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 that's a good New Year's resolution to have. Yeah, that's it, um, right? Yeah. Yes. New Year's resolution. Yeah. Yeah. Great, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> have you been doing stand-up, though? Uh, for uh, five, four or five years, I think. I don't know off the top of my head. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's going well. But, yeah, enli- enlightenment is the main goal, so that that's going to be the top of my list. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. If I, if I come on next time and I can fly, then... You know, <laughs> oh, no, you've work. made progress, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, meditate 10 feet above the ground, we expect at least that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, this broadcast is brought to you by MindPod Network, and what announcements may we have or not have, Noah? <laughs> um... We do not have any major announcements right now, but just the same announcement that mindpodnetwork.com. There's podcasts there. You can subscribe on iTunes. Uh, should we remind everyone of the teachers who are part of MPN? Please do that. So we have Jack Cornfield, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Ron Das, and we also have these two, David Silver and Raghu Marcus. They do Mind Rolling podcasts. Um, and we're hoping to, we've been also featuring a few other podcasts that aren't part of MPN, but are similar in terms of vein, uh, uh, you know, consciousness, all of this stuff. So yeah, just, uh, you know, stay tuned. There will be a lot of new podcasts coming out and we're going to plan some special things for 2015. So, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all of those things. Let's mention one of our friends who's very close to us, our guru. Duncan Trussell. Of course, Duncan, of course. Yeah. In fact, none of you have heard this podcast. He and I did a live podcast in front of an audience in Maui at this retreat we were at with Ramdas Krishna. I heard that. I was there. Yeah, you heard it, but you're the only one of this group except for Rachel. I was there for 10 minutes. Oh. It was really good. It's gonna, that is going to be a very special one um, that I think a lot of people will enjoy. So yeah. we'll definitely. I think that's perfect and really represents MindPod. Thanks, Jack. Great to Thank see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always it's always great. Of course. And great, uh, great for us. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you, David. Rachel. Thanks, everyone. Noah, we will Bye-bye. see you next week. Alrighty.